This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Brett, can you share some context to what you were up to before Kelly and the original founding story? I can. I left school at 18. My dad had had a business where an accountant had embezzled some money. So I was going to go and study law. And instead, I decided to study accounting. I always had a great interest in business and believed that it could really make a difference for people. And so I started a Price Waterhouse in 1993, spent four and a half years there as a undergrad accountant, moving through to grad accountant and then senior accountant. And I left there to join an investment bank, that investment bank in corporate advisory. I then lost that job because I didn't fit in with other people and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So my dad gave me two books called How to Win Friends and Influence People, the other one Think and Grow Rich. I read those books and it was clear to me that I'd had no real instruction on how to deal well with people and do much better if I understood that working with people is the way to get things done. And so I, you know, I think our education system encourages you to learn and be very individually intelligent, but really big things are achieved with teams and groups of people. So that was a big sort of learning breakthrough. I went back into chartered accounting, got my chartered accounting qualifications, I finished it, did my uh, master's degree in tax, got my tax agent license and my justice of the peace, went through three smaller firms. And in each, in each, on each occasion, they promised to make me an equity partner. And then when it came to delivering that, they had reasons that they couldn't do that. And what I worked out was these, these firms were private businesses like the businesses we were advising, and they just weren't very organized. So I thought, well, if the accounts themselves aren't organized, how could we organize our clients? And then um, a friend of mine up on the Central Coast in New South Wales, Scott Elwin, had asked me to start to help him get out of a firm that he was in and start a firm with him. So I did that. And a few months later, my boss in my firm, or in the firm I was working with, sort of promised one thing and delivered another. And I said to my wife, look, I just don't want to be in the industry anymore. There's too many people that lie and cheat and scam and carry on. And she said, why don't you just start a firm and I said, well, you know, a couple of my colleagues had asked me to do that. A number of my clients had, had mentioned to me that they were surprised I didn't have my own firm. And I um, sort of reluctantly thought well, that might work. And so, you know, what I've realized in recent times is that I was asked by my mate Scott and then I was asked by uh, my friend Craig and, and um, my colleague Ada to, to do something with them and Joyce and and so other people saw in me things I didn't see in myself necessarily. And that was that I did know a lot about how to get things done and, and a business. I'd written two books by then. I wrote my first book that was a, a bestseller after I lost my job. I interviewed 34 prominent Australians, asked them what made them successful, self-published it, made it a bestseller. And then I wrote my second book called Universal Wisdom on Seven People That Have Changed the World including Nelson Mandela, Warren Buffett, these types of people. 
And so I, I had an interesting set of skills. I'd done a lot of professional speaking off the back of the books. I just had different skills to accountants, and those accountants saw that in me and asked me to do things with them, so I did. Now, being me, I, um, I'm pretty driven, so I then thought, you know, I could really improve the industry so that other clients and mostly people in firms didn't have to put up with what I had had to put up with. And so I went about designing a better way to run a chartered accounting firm. I said that, you know, it would be much better if the partners didn't sit around politicking and pretending they were all in charge. So I had a 5149 structure. I thought it would be much better for the people and the clients if the partners themselves had signed a long-term agreement. So I came up with the idea of the partners having a minimum 10-year commitment. I knew that the accounts and partners um, didn't like to be part-time marketing, part-time HR, part-time IT, and therefore nothing worked. So I thought we'd have a central team, what we call a central progress team, to, to do that for them so that our partners would get about 40% of their time back just to look after their team, look after their clients and look after themselves and their own well-being. Because it's difficult to turn up to help other people if you're not, you know, put together well yourself. And so, um, you know, I decided that we needed the right strategy, which is just go after private business owners because they're the people that basically risk their house, take a mortgage on their house, start a business. I really had a heart for those people. They're not like multinationals that can get away from paying tax. These are people that are really committed to actually doing something and they employ 70% of all people. And then overwhelmingly, I believe that there was clearly the case that a lot of people were stressed. A lot of business owners were stressed about their money and their business and that we could build a better way to help them. And so that's what we did. I basically came up with a 12-part way to run a business called the, called the Progress Pyramid, which I've recently trademarked. And that just says that you need to focus first on the mission of the business. What are the values? What is the vision? What is the strategy and the structure, which is the foundation? And then what are you doing about people, process, clients, financial, digital, risk, brand, growth, and succession? And then if you looked at each part of a business in that way, you'd actually um, be able to help people get organized in their heads, understand where their real issues were, and take action to address them. So it wasn't you know, it was the idea of being a holistic advisor, helping people get from where they are to where they want to be. Those people being people that own private businesses, they keep their accounts typically for 30 to 50 years across multi-generations, provide a multi-generational cradle-to-grave solution to stop people being stressed about their money, to be clear about where they were trying to go, and to help them do that. Now, I thought if we got even half of that right, we'd do okay. I was inspired by the world's best businesses, so in people, four seasons, in process, Maccas and Walmart, um, in clients, Apple, and in financials, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and you know, I thought if we were just trying to, if we just tried to be like the best businesses in the world, we'd probably do okay. Whereas most accounting firms are just looking at other accounting firms, and they never really become a business. Just back to the books. There's a bit there for you, isn't there? Yeah, and and so, you know, what got you interested, or you know, why did you write? the book so early what was the story there so i'm 22 i get put into outplacement at a company called morgan and bank so i go in there there's a room full of men who've lost their jobs i was talking to them for six weeks somebody took their business cards they lost their whole identity their lives were, were a disaster i saw men in tears and absolutely shattered this is in 1997 and um i just decided i didn't want to become one of those men i looked at you know, what happened? And I asked them directly, you know, how did you get here? They had what I called the full disaster. 
I was living at home. I'd saved every penny that I'd worked for since I was 14. I'd washed cars, mowed lawns, walked dogs. Um, and, you know, these men had mortgages in houses that they couldn't afford to impress people they didn't like, kids at private schools. A full disaster. It was horrible. And that lost their identity. They didn't know who they were absent their job. They didn't know where they were, and they had no idea how they got there. I was very struck. And frankly, it was quite traumatic to see really grown men who otherwise you'd, you'd walk past on the street as pillars of society that you'd really admire that had had their whole world turned upside down. So I start, my dad gave me these two books. I'm reading the books. I think, okay, think of Grow Rich. Pe find people that have been successful. Find out, you know, what to do. I, I wasn't born as Kerry Packer's son or anyone, in, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. So I wrote, I'm 22, I'm unemployed, I'm keen to learn. If you'd spend an hour answering my 11 standard questions, uh, you know, I'll get it in a book and get it out to other young people that are keen to learn. I genuinely wanted to try and work out what life was all about. I embarked, I was reading, I bought the Simon & Schuster self-help tape catalogue, tapes in those days. Those 2,000 tapes, I put them on a bookshelf in my garage and while I was working on the book, I just listened to these tapes. And there were all these sort of motivational, inspirational people saying, read a book a week. You know, if, if you want to, uh, an education will get you a job, a self-education will make you a fortune, this sort of stuff. Um, Jim Rohn, don't ask that life gets easier, ask that you get better. And they just affected me that, that in fact, as Steve Jobs says, you know, once you work out that everything you see was made by someone, you can actually do something. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do this book. The 12th person I interviewed was the former Prime Minister, Bob Hawke. He said to me, Brett, you know, there's nothing better that you could be doing given your situation. This learning will change your life. If there's anyone that you want to meet, just let me know and I'll help. And as soon as somebody of that caliber had, had backed me in that way and shown such faith and encouragement to me, it gave me a sense, and it's one of the reasons I've, I see myself as a student. I still try to go and meet the greats because they never make you feel worse about who you are. They, you know, someone like me, my dominant sort of energy comes from learning. My strength under the Gallup strength test that we use at Gallup Partners is learning. I love to learn. It gives me energy. So I just found that, you know, I wanted to change. I wanted to make my life better. And I knew I didn't know everything. And I, you know, every book I've written since, I then, I, I read 3,000 books over five years. I watched the BBC 7-Up series where they film kids every seven years for 50 years. It's the highest performing documentary series in history. It was filmed in England. And I saw that and I said, every seven years I'll stop and I'll write a book. And what that's done is the idea was to not become one of those 50-year-old guys who didn't know where they were and how they got there. So it forces me to stop. I reflect on where I've been, where I'm going. I choose a topic that is of interest to me. And then I go and interview people or profile people to try and think. Writing things down is very hard. Putting a book together is even harder. But the effort means that you have to slow down. And I'm a very energetic, sort of kinetic person. And so that effort to slow down and reflect, I have found um, to be very, very helpful. Um, this book behind me called Toughen Up by Michael Hill, he um, talks about having a 30-year plan. I read that, I think, in 2009. And so, you know, I run, I was running 30-year plans and now I run 25-year plans um, with a big, long spreadsheet trying to work out who you want to be, what you want to do, what you want to have, 
what you want to give over those periods of time and looking at the age of your kids and the age of your wife to try and make sure you know where you are. That's a great thing to do personally and, see, and, and, and then that feeds into the business. But so you this 25-year part of your plan. What's the core of your plan? Do you see yourself doing this in 30 years' time? Yeah, that's my plan. <laughs> you know, I was on Twitter today and I'm doing a podcast with somebody and I was getting some gratuitous advice and one of the things was, you know, don't quote books or quote people. But I have been massively influenced by the people who I didn't know. And so they're like my virtual mentors. I watch them on YouTube or in the past, you know, I just get their books. Um, they, they changed my life. You know, I started reading Philip Fisher's book of Common Stocks um, and Uncommon Profits when I was 18. Uh, it led me to Buffett and Munger and these types of people. And they changed the way I think. And, I, and I'm unbelievably grateful to to those people. So they're my heroes. You know, Charlie Munger was a lawyer. He went to Harvard or was in the army, went to Harvard, came back to, you know, or went to California because he saw the opportunity to build a law firm. And then Buffett said to him, you know, you're not going to get wealthy being a lawyer. Um, you need to be an investor. So he became an investor. I took those ideas of Munger's and said, okay, I can be an investor. I can use the intelligence that I have around accounting firms and create a holding company, improve as an active manager of accounting firms, an alternate asset manager, if you like, of accounting firms, use a lot of my gifts and talents to help accountants be better at what they do and create a structure where they can do their best work. And I plan to do it forever. Like I plan to be, you know, without mentioning my heroes too much. You know, I went and sat there. One of them's 98, one of them's 91, and they're so coherent and they're so passionate about what they do. When I walked into, you know, I'm in Omaha this year. I walked into their big, like, the big trade fair of all their companies. And all I could see is these companies that were bought 50 years ago. And I thought, why couldn't I have a big room like that full of accounting firms that joined us, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, blah, blah, blah. And 50 years, why can't I have tra a trade fair that has all these accounting firms that, you know, when they joined us, one of them was nearly 100 years old. Like, why can't we be a permanent owner, partner of accounting firms that want to you know, continue to serve their people, their clients and communities rather than be sold, you know, bought up and sold off and raped and pillaged by PE or other people. Well, what could be a reason for that, why that wouldn't happen then in your mind with your structure? Well, if I die, you know, I hope the structure can continue and it's got a structure such that it, it can continue identified succession and it's all documented. But other than that, you know, I aim to, the way I'm trying to personally live is to be able to do what I'm doing for a very, very long time to maintain the passion and interest that I have. You know, I love it. I, you know, it's just how I, and yet, look, I'm 48. I've got to a point where I understand myself. I understand that this is what I love doing. Why do you love it? I like helping people. So mm -hmm. I go and meet firms. They've got a succession problem. They've got a growth problem. They're struggling to attract people. They're doing their best, but they know they could do better. Most of them know what they should be doing, but struggle to execute. And I like helping people. I like to see people succeed. So, you know, I got that from my first book, you know. If you're helping other people succeed, then you'll do pretty well. What about for so back to back to Charlie and, and you know, Munger and Buffett? And it's, it's interesting because they've got a slightly different – I think they were both interested in money and wealth and, and success in that, in that way. Charlie kind of more outright than – Buffett, it seems like Buffett seems to love, really love the game when he comes across in, in speaking. Obviously, for a young age, he was interested in money, but Charlie was a bit more like 
he says, when he's like, I wanted to get wealthy. I wanted to be rich. How do you think about success? And, you know, you mentioned you love learning. How do you link that with, you know, getting wealthy and, and compounding capital? So I heard Steve Jobs say that when he came back to Apple, he realized that if he didn't run the business well, he wouldn't have the paint for his canvas. I also heard, you know, Warren Buffett say the same thing, that he's just working on this big artwork that's in his head. It'll never be finished, but he loves the process. So for me, I believe that, you know, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm pro-profit. I believe that, you know, if you don't like the profit, you can always give it to a charity that you that you are very passionate about. But I believe that capitalism, if undertaken with the right intentions, is the best system for helping people make themselves better off. And not just, you know, that's healthy, wealthy, and wise, not just financially. So for me, when I interviewed these people when I was 22, I saw a lot of people that had sacrificed a lot of relationships for money, including many marriages and broken up their families and a lot of problems with their children. And and so for me, I I was interested in, you know, Imelda Roach, who built a company called Nutramedics in Australia, was a, a real inspiration to me in that, you know, her and Bill had been married for 50, 60 years. They'd raised a family, they had four kids, 15 grandkids. They all lived within five Ks of each other. She'd worked really hard to build a family as well as a life and a business. And so that was really inspiring to me. And so I thought, well, look, in the accounting industry, many people cut corners. And in my view, you know, I'd worked with a lot of them. I thought they'd sold their soul for not very much money, which kind of seems like a double, doubly stupid thing to do. And so for me, the exercise of saying, well, could you conduct a business in a, you know, in a really good way and actually still have top of the charts financial results, which is what always inspired me about Buffett, was that not only had he become tremendously wealthy, but I believe he's conducted himself in a way that he can be proud of. And so, you know, a friend of mine said to me a couple of years ago, I was skiing, I think, and, and I'd encourage them to build their business, which they thanked me for. And they said, you know, what's the one thing that, that you're most happy about with the business you've built. And, I've said, and I said that, you know, I'm proud of, of our um, ability to commit to ideas that we think are good and stick to them. And so for me, the dollars are, are much more important to other people than me. I want to compound as well as anyone ever has because I'm that person. I, you know, if I do anything, I'm all in. I want to be the best in the world at whatever I do. And so when I looked at, you know, realistically where I was, I was like, am I deeply passionate about the difference that accountants for private business owners can make? Yes. Is there an economic model? Yes. Can I be the best in the world? Yes. That's Jim Collins. That's Hedgehog. Answer, yes. I'm in the right place. So let's build the world's best business in this space. There's a great old sermon from the 1800s that I'd read many years before called Diamonds Under Your Feet. And it relates that most people are standing on diamonds, but they're always looking you know, to the next field, which looks greener, but it's mainly, you know, fed with bullshit. And so I was like, look, I'm here. I must be here for a reason as a chartered accountant with a tax background, working with people that I did, you know, and I do very much admire for their willingness to take a risk and build something. And I want to help them. And then I looked at the accountants the same way. I said, well, hang on, the accountants are trying to help people, but their businesses are terribly run. That's not what they're really interested in. And as a young guy working in those businesses, it was horrible. So I was like, well, couldn't I make the business itself better so that the accountants could help the clients be much better off? 
And wouldn't that have a very positive impact on the community given these clients employ everyone, basically 70% of all people? And I was like, well, if I did that, there's a flywheel effect that every time you do that good, good stuff, you get really well rewarded in terms of the great feedback you get and the relationships you build. And it also turns out you make plenty of money. And so I thought, well, what's wrong with all of that? That's a pretty good life. And I was, you know, as I looked at, at Munger and Buffett, I think, I think they may well have started out. Certainly Munger wanted, you know, I don't think he likes people that much. And I think he liked to be quite financially independent. So he didn't have to put up with people that, who, who didn't sort of operate on his intellectual level. Whereas I think for Warren, he, he didn't really fit in. He just had these crazy gifts and I think he just tried to do the best he could and worked, you know, found his place in the world. And I, I think he's probably quite, you know, determinedly good company, frankly, seems to be the way. I can't say I know any of them. But, you know, that that's that's been the journey is to say, well, hang on, if you're doing good things and you can do more of that for people, then, then wouldn't you make a bunch of money anyway? And, I seem to have a natural understanding of that anyway, so that's helpful. And, and, and certainly work very hard to have a deep understanding of it. Well, and I see you also offer business coaching, is it the Grow program? Is it, it looks pretty interesting. Is that, do you still do that today or how does that work now? So I, I, I had two clients come to me once and they said, hey, Brett, you seem to um, be on holidays a lot and you're fit and healthy and you look relaxed and you've got a really good business. So how does that work? And I started showing them what we do. And they said, look, I've been in this um, family business forum. They don't teach anything like that. Could you teach us what you do? And so I said, yeah, look, if you get 10 people together and they pay 15,000 bucks each, I'll do nine half days and I'll teach you how we run the business. And so that became a, a product called the Grow Program. It helps people grow their businesses. And what I loved about that was it forced me to de Kelly Partners, my system, and then teach it to other people. Now, you know, one of these people had a business turning over 500 million a year, right? At that time, we were turning over maybe 20 million a year, but they could see that we were very much under control and we had a system growing. And that was great because it, it brought more and more people to the business. You know, I think it's Stephen Covey who says, you know, if you want to master something, you need to teach it. And so it forced me five years in a row to teach our system to our clients. And that refined and refined and refined the system. You still do it today, or is it that was just no? At the moment, I I bought a coaching business that had eighteen accountants in it, or Kelly Partners bought it, and I've been running that for eighteen accounting firms, and I and I basically said to them, look, I'll run it for a year with you, and um, give you the opportunity to join our firm. I think we bought two of them, maybe three of them so far, so there's fifteen to go. So I, ba I backed myself that I could coach the guys and that all uh, that all decide to join us. Um, if they don't, well, I won't run it next year. <laughs> so it's hard to get me to run it. Wait, so, so you bought the company and it's, it's, it's a pretty much a coaching program for aiding firms. You go in there, you teach them, you own the business, they pay, they pay a fee every year and you teach them the part of the Kelly system and the idea is you can, that's, that's a funnel for you to acquire the ones you like over time. Yeah, so I did that. There was a coach who was Melbourne-based, he had 18 firms that he was coaching, accounting firms, and I said, well, you, you want to retire, I'll buy your business. And then I got the guys and said, look, you can sign up for one year, I'll teach you what I know, and I want you to join Kelly Partners. And if you don't, then next year I'm not going to run it anymore. So I think it, it's you know something I can use as a funnel. If I start talking about how to grow your business, you know, people do tend to find it quite compelling 
and quite duplicatable because our system is well thought out into their private business. I've never coached any accounting firm before that isn't a part of our group. And so when people have phoned me over the last 15 years and said, would you coach me to make my accounting firm better? I've said to them, yes, you sell us 51% of your business and I'll coach you how to run your business better. So that's, that's what that initiative's been. But again, that uses our progress pyramid, our system. Right. And that's, that was re- last year you bought this business or is that? Yeah, I just, I just started in, I think we bought it in about March. I've done, I've done one session so far and we bought three firms, two and a half firms. I think the third one's happening at the moment. Might be done. Let me check. <laughs> Interesting. Well, so taking a step back, look at the market then, you know, and historically, why do you think companies like Stockford and WHK struggled to scale? So there's an academic in New South Wales who's actually studied these businesses and he's written a number of papers on them, which I've read. And it was quite interesting because I had some thoughts because I have been in the industry for 30 years since I was 18. So I have seen all of these businesses come and go and I'm a reader and observer of life and business. And so I had some ideas which I've built into our system. So, you know, either your life is an example or a warning. And so it's good to study the warnings because you often learn more from the warnings than you do even from the examples. So if you look at those businesses, they had... um, certain commonalities the first one was that none of them were led by accountants they were in all cases led by financial planners who wanted to buy accounting firms to sell financial products to the clients so the inherent reason for those businesses to exist as far as i'm concerned was illegitimate there were bad values at the root of those businesses it was just a financial trade so trying to cross sell wealth management stuff that was the only reason you know, it's like, hey, why did you buy an accounting firm? Oh, because I want to sell sell stuff to the clients. That's not a particularly deep reason to be in business and unlikely to be, you know, rewarded by the universe over time. Business is hard and so to stay the course, you have to have a real reason to do it and it really needs to resonate and matter to you. You know, I work 16 hours a day, six days a week for five years minimum to build this thing from scratch, right? It takes a lot of work. You really have to want to do it and you have no sense of where you're going to end up. So a financial trade isn't a good reason to start a business. Secondly, those people were what I call promoters. They were, they were spinning up a scheme to hope that somebody else would buy their stock at a price higher than, than they paid for it. And then, you know, that's ring-a-ring-a-rosy. Again, not particularly deep. I think it was in the case of Stockford, they listed, they owned 50 firms or so, and they, they were trying to centralise and integrate 50 firms the day after an IPO. And I, I think it failed within 18 months. It's just impossible to integrate 50 firms at once. And they used equity, I believe, the listed equity to, to incentivise opcos. Yeah, and like money is not a good basis for a relationship. And I, I don't understand why people don't understand that people are people first. So if the only reason for you to join a deal is money, hey, come and join my scheme, I'll give you equity, and then we're going to sell it off to other unsuspecting people at an IPO at a higher price than you paid for it, and you're going to make a quick, dirty profit. That's not a, that's not a legitimate and deep reason to be in that business. It's just, it's not love, it's money. So why do you think your firms sell to you? What, what- 
What's the difference? We're not in business for money. That's the difference. Now, the right definition of love is to, you know, one of them certainly is to want the best for other people. And so we're in the business to make other people better off genuinely. There has to be a genuine ethic and a, a real ethos to want to actually make other people better off. To build a flywheel of, you know, making a difference. If, you, if you're in a business like ours where you can really make a difference, you're going to earn a profit. You just have to not be in a rush. So we want to be long-term people in a short-term world. Those businesses were all promoters trying to make a quick profit. We're trying to get really, 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 really wealthy over a really, 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 really long time. And as Buffett says, not a lot of people want to do that. They want to get rich quick. I think Buffett himself was worth $600 million when he was 56. Right? He made all of his wealth after he was 65. It took a long time. But you live a life in the meantime and hopefully you're behaving in a way where you're building relationships and making a difference and you can feel proud of the relationship you have with your wife and your kids and the life you're building, the relationships you're building, the difference you're making. And you get money as well. So it's got to be and you get money as well, not the only reason you do what you do is a financial trade. So those three firms, Stockford, Hearts, WHK and Count Plus here in Australia, all of them, they were all conceived in bad ideas. Their very conception was let's buy accounting firms to sell financial products to them. That's never going to end well. And it's hard to change once you've built that as a culture. You know, it's difficult to go and change, you know, some nasty scenario into some positive scenario. So when I've had the opportunity to buy into businesses that I feel like have been sort of conceived with the wrong ideas, you can't unscramble the scrambled egg. So rather than do that, we continue to pursue this programmatic acquisition activity with a 5149 structure where we double the profits and reduce the working capital by two-thirds of the businesses that we get involved with, and we genuinely make the owners, the people that work in those businesses, the clients and our communities better off. Now, it doesn't happen quickly. It takes actual work. You've got to really integrate them, and it takes time. But the compounding effect of doing things well is very substantial over time. And you know this, and, you know, but it's not it's long-term behaviour in a short-term world, that's all. It's not very sexy. How did you come about the 5149 structure? I realised, like I've been in accounting firms since I was 18, and I realised that it's like five partners, they all have 20% each, and they all think they're in charge. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. This way, I can say to our partners, right, you guys own 49%, you guys run it, let me know if you need anything. And, you know, the, the heart to, go, to, to, to leadership is decision-making. You've got to make decisions. You can't just keep putting things off. Most of put things off. Now, our structure means that if no one will make a decision, obviously I can make a decision. But I don't have to make decisions because my partners are leaders. They go in and they lead. And they make decisions because, you know, in a situation where somebody can make a decision, typically people do make decisions. So I saw that because I was a young guy that would sit there and go, why won't they swap the software from this software to that software, which would make my life easier and the client better off? And then I'd say to the partner, they go, oh, well, I want to do that, but the other partners won't agree. They don't want to spend any money. They won't invest. Rah, rah, rah. And it would go on for months and months, in some cases years. Some partners would be running one system, others running the other. There were no synergies at all in the firms. They were all sole traders effectively sitting in their own corners, doing their own things, acting like a co-op, 
right? Sharing the photocopy and the leaks of the floor. It was horrible to working as a young, smart guy. Take, taking that capital out, we're going to have to get paid as a partnership. So 51.49. Secondly, firms are partnerships. So they just pay 100% of the profits out. There's no retained profits. They never reinvest. So we came up with this idea of a 6.5% on revenue fee and 2.5% IP fee so that 9% of the revenues would have to be reinvested in the businesses every year. And as we've grown, that means we can invest in better people, better recruitment, better software, better systems, better processes. And the flywheel effect of that, like next year, that, that number will be seven or eight million dollars. Now, if you think about the competitive position that puts a firm in, we go and we try to buy a firm doing two to 10 million in a, in a local or regional area. And that firm, by joining us, has our seven, eight, nine million dollars this year reinvestment plus the millions of dollars we've invested over the last 16 years in our system, immediately stuck under them as a platform to shove them forward. It's an unbeatable advantage to those firms. They have better people situations, have better recruitment, better people systems, better processes internally, better process for the clients. Better, better client engagement system, better financial management, better digital, better brand, better growth. Care about that? Is, that? is that one of the reasons why they... That's why they join, because that doubles their profits. It gives them 40% of their time back and reduces the working capital in the firm by two-thirds. So the cash flow to the partners explodes. Their accountants, they can see it. We can show them. And we can show them now where we've done that 63 times. And so it's a very strong proposition that, that has, has a real flywheel effect because we've done it over and over and over again. So every firm we meet, we can prove we can do the same thing for them. And it's fun, I have to say. How does the working capital change so much? Well, standards matter in life and business. And if you think you can't, you can't. And if you think you can, you can. And if somebody like me can turn up with our team and say, well, here's 25 other businesses, this is what they're doing to run lockup at this level versus lockup at that level, 50 days versus 120 or 150 days. In fact, lower most of the time. Um, it gives people a sense of belief. And then they can more regularly, fill in more, fill in weekly, bi-weekly. Hey, we, we, we do 40 things that no one else does. And we do them every day. And we coach them into the people and the part of the fabric of the firm. But the part, first thing you've got to set the standards. Then you've got to give people belief. You've got to be able to show them it's possible, and they have to believe that. And then they have to have faith and trust you that, that they can try that for their firm. Uh, but, but think about most firms, right? The average leadership of charter firms of any size in Sydney, it's the same in the UK, and I've just been in the US, by the way, it's the same there. They're basically blokes who are 60-plus. Now, these men, good men that they are, they already know everything, and that's the worst place to end up in life. So when you turn up and you say, hey, we could improve things, if you're me, they, they actually start to believe. It's still a bit of a conversation. But imagine being a young guy in that firm, trying to get that firm to try, change internally. Good luck. They're not listening to you. They barely listen to me. Like I think we can get the market cap to five times today's market cap before anyone realises we know anything about anything. Because they just don't. Because they just don't, they they just they know everything, and they already know everything, right? So, when your head's up your own ass, the only thing you can see is your own shit, and it's a very dark, stinky place. But that benefits you, right? You, you, you. And that's where our industry lives. 
right? I used to work for people that behaved like that and I resented it deeply. I was like, pull your head out, look around. How is it that Apple behaves this way or Four Seasons or Maccas or Walmart or whatever? How come these other businesses can behave like businesses, but we have to behave like we're in the 18th century? And I hated it. As a young guy, I was just going to get out of the industry. I thought, I can't stand the sort of backward ideas that nothing can change and nothing can be better and I already know everything and just know your place, son, and shut up. I was sick of it. And so, you know, essentially, you know, we built the firm so that we had a place. We sat down, a bunch of us at the beginning, and we wrote what we call a shit list, all the things that were shit in the firm food worked in, and we said, right, how do we fix them? Because we didn't want to put up with it anymore. We didn't want to be told that, you know, a woman who wants to become a partner should be told, well, you know, don't have a baby because that's going to interrupt things. We say go have as many babies as you want and be a partner, right? I'd seen really horrible attitudes towards, you know, my wife. She was pregnant in a firm and she was asked whether she was going to keep it and then she was asked to, or she was told to go part-time. You know, the stories I can share of what I've seen in the industry are just horrible and we wanted to build something that was an antidote to that. And I've been asked many times, Brett, did you think you could build a better firm and I wasn't arrogant, and I still aren't. I just said, no, I didn't. I don't think I can build a better firm, but I know we can't build a worse firm if we make an effort, right? And so that's the game. And when you're thinking about reducing or improving lockup, and is there any limitation to that as you do scale? You know, if you're at 200, 300, 400? There's no limitation to that. None at all. There's just excuses. It just depends if are you going to get big. You get fat. But in terms of the work that you do, right? In terms of the multi-complex no, work. That's what people say who won't commit to doing. Why? Why? If somebody comes to me, we have clients that pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. We have some of the best clients in the country, right? These are the myths that people that can't run their business tell themselves to excuse their bad behavior. I used to work for these people. If you're going to pay me $200,000 a year, you're a big client. But why do you get to set the terms? Because they're one, they're one of your big customers, I guess. So what? Why don't I just go and get another big customer? I don't have to accept any terms. It's our business. But so that you, you give them the same term. Well, you turn turn around to those clients and you say you must pay us on time. This is how you must pay us. You get it's our business. We get to set the terms of business. Now, why would we drop our standards as we get bigger? But if, if you get if you get one of the big you know top fifty companies in in, in Australia, then are they going to doesn't the, the power dynamics change? No, it's our business. We just say no. We don't need your work. Why do we need their work? Well, is it, I mean, that, so there's there's the, there's the bargaining power side. What about the actual? Is it more unstructured as you get bigger, or is it you know doing more complex work, advisory work, or? So this is the thing, right? We have these people who say, oh. When you do more complex work, well, if it's more valuable and more complex, wouldn't the profitability and the terms improve? What sort of excuse are people telling themselves? They run around and speak about our firm as if we do individual tax returns, and they have no idea because we keep taking their excellent clients. The fact is, if you're excellent at what you, you do and you have standards, you demand those standards from your clients. You turn around and say, this is the basis upon which we do business with Kelly Partners. And they often say to us, oh, but at, at the, the other firm, they let me pay them, you know, whenever, we, whenever I like. Yeah, and I say, well, that's good because at Kelly Partners, we don't do that. So that's just leadership. And the fact is that our industry is not renowned for its leadership. I used to work for some of these people. They tell themselves excuses. Recently at our partners' retreat, 
I did a presentation called Wives' Tales, Myths, Hot Air and Bullshit that Our Industry Floats On. The things people tell themselves that aren't true, right? We just don't do that. Like we, we, our partner group have been in the industry for years, hundreds of years, and we've sat down and said, what are the things that we're not going to tolerate as a business? We're not going to tolerate people not paying us on time. Simple. That's a choice. We're not going to do work that isn't at an appropriate margin. We're not going to do work with people who we find morally offensive. We're not going to work with businesses engaged in activities we find morally offensive, but we never have. So we have the benefit of having had standards from the beginning. Can we just walk through a simple hypothetical transaction? And you know, let's say I'm running an SME accounting firm, million dollars in revenue for you know, 60 odd years. I want, want to retire or cash out a portion. What's the typical transaction structure? So we'll offer dollar for dollar, somewhere between 60 and 90% up front, sometimes on receipt. So revenue multiples, dollar for dollar. Yeah, one times revenue. But again, we'll pay whatever we think is an appropriate valuation or whatever terms we think are appropriate. And we've done every type of deal. I bought two firms off dead guys. I bought two firms off guys who had nervous breakdowns. I bought some of the best firms in the country. Have joined our group, chosen to join us. So we'll pay a portion up front. We'll pay a portion after two-year retention. Um, we might do a longer retention depending on the circumstances. And um, and we have a plan to improve on a line-by-line basis of profitability of that firm the minute they join our group. Now we make that improvement plan, what we call a transformation plan, the key term of the agreement that we sign with the firm that we buy so that we've all agreed that that's what we're going to do together. And it's a genuine partnership. And how have those multiples changed dollar for dollar, revenue multiples over the last? They've never changed. Never changed? No. And the reason is, well, we just decide the deals we want to do with the people that, you know, meet our values. So it's similar to this argument about, oh, why your data day is lower than mine? We do more complex work and bullshit, bullshit. It's rubbish. We choose to partner with firms that want to be part of our group to share our values and our vision for the difference that they can make in the industry to their people, their clients, and their communities. That's it. And we do that on appropriate financial terms. And if they want to go and sell themselves to some guy that's going to rip up and you know chew up and spit out their people and their clients and their firm, then they can do that. But most people are selling us. They're choosing to join us with a firm that they've poured their heart and soul into. You know, They've spent more time with these firms than they have with their kids most of the time. They care about their people and their clients. And they want that firm to go into the hands of somebody who really understands what it is to build a firm from scratch. And they know when they meet me that I have that founder's understanding of how hard it is to build a firm and how much effort you put in and the sacrifices that you make and how important it is to you to, to make sure that business is looked after properly. It's not just a financial transaction, not even close. Is it an auction process? No, we don't do, we don't do auctions. So these are usually getting through brokers or...? No, we've done two, we've done sixty three deals. We've done two through brokers. Sixty one of them have come direct, and they know that we exist, and they know that we know plenty about how to do this well. And frankly, they have respect for us. One of the reasons that we listed in twenty seventeen was so that people could see transparently the quality of the business. And they ring me and they say they send me a text normally and say, "Can we have a coffee?" Which means I'm keen to talk. And they come to my office secretly, and we meet. And I just say, "Look." You know, if everything could be as good as it could be, what would it look like and how can I help you get there? And then I don't really care about the price and the terms. They're pretty obvious and 
I've never had somebody that's really trying to get me to look after. You see, people think we're buying these firms. What we're really doing is forming a partnership to look after these firms for the next 100 years. And so when that's your conception, they're not thinking, oh, well, that guy over there will give me a bit more. I'm like, well, mate, if a bit more matters to you, either go sell your soul to him or, or maybe tell me why we should pay a bit more and maybe we'll pay a bit more. You know, we're not hung up on the money. They don't join us because of the money. They join us because they can feel a passion and the care that we have for what we do. They can see the genuine evidence of the quality of what we do and they want to be part of what we're doing. What was the average age of the partners that sell to Kelly? Um, so the average age of our partners, I think, is about 42. And the average age of the partners that sell to us, it's hard to say. The average age of the, the, part, the, the senior partners is 62. Um, but the partners in those businesses are generally average age 40, 42. And recently we did one where the partners, fantastic two-partner firm, the, the guys are 38 and 39. Um, and they just said to me, look, Brett, we can, we're trying to be like you and your group, and then we can see that it would just be better if we just were part. You know, we share your vision. We should just be part of what you're doing. So that's great. So, you know, they're the reasons. Well, so, what, so if I'm, you know, so if I'm running my firm, let's say I'm, you know, 38, 39, another guy, million, million dollar firm. Two million. You'll be, there'll be two of you. You'll be doing a million pound each and you'll be killing, you'll be killing yourself. Right. So what happens is you get to 38, 39, you've built this really good firm and you're belting yourself, killing yourself. And your wife's starting to say to you, Hey, honey, you know, the kids are now six and four. You never see them. You never hear. You're always stressed. What are you doing? Now, those guys face a 50-50 chance of divorce for a start, whether they be men or women. And they're looking at their life saying, hey, how, you know, I can't look after my health. I'm struggling to be engaged with my family. I'm always stressed because I'm trying to make a photocopy of work and I'm trying to do the marketing and I'm part-time HR and I don't have a brand to recruit to. I don't have anyone to help me. It was fun at the start, but now it's a nightmare. And they ring me up and they say, well, what can you do for me? And I say, well, you know, if I was a partner, I know a little bit about this stuff and I can probably help you. But if I bought my central progress team and we were able to help you have a better offer for your people so we could recruit better for you and we help you with your systems and processes and run your IT pay all of your bills and run your finance, give you the best financial reporting you've ever seen, give you strategic advice on your client base, how to improve your profit and your cash flow, and also just be a great bunch of guys and girls and give you a huge social network, right, of some of the best people in the country that can help you whether you need a doctor, access to a school or whatever you need, travel, anything. Would you rather be part of this or rather just keep smashing your face into a concrete wall is how it's been described to me as feeling. Now, I was that guy, remember. I started by myself. I know what it feels like. I was trying to build a solution to what I had seen. And the guy and girl say to me, hang on, Brett, that sounds great. Can we talk? And that's how we get deals done. Well, and so a million dollars in revenue, you would pay, oh, yeah, so there's two, two million, so you'd pay, you'd pay a million equity, a million debt. Yeah, no, um, we're going to buy 51% of two million, say two million pounds. Or two million dollars. We're gonna we're gonna buy a million pounds worth. So we're gonna buy half. We're gonna pay 60, 70, 80 percent up front. So we're gonna borrow that and then yeah, we're gonna pay that. it off. Yeah, and we're gonna pay it off. We'll pay it off in three or four years. Maybe faster if we're if we're any good. 
uh, depending on the growth profile of the firm, maybe five years if we're a bit slow. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to strengthen up that business. We're going to find the next two partners. We're going to try and train them up, step them up, find some more revenue that we're going to grow organically to at 5 to 10%. I'm going to do another couple of tuck-ins and try and get that firm to 4 to 5 million. We think that's kind of four partners, four or five millions, a pretty strong firm if it's in a good location. And then we're going to try and do that hundreds of times. We've done it 63 times. And we think we can do that here in Australia, New Zealand, the US, Canada, the UK, and probably in Europe. We look at firms like ETL and Constellation, and we know that it's possible to do quite a lot of that. So you don't use any of your cash to actually acquire the company? Or to keep... Well, we try not to. We, we will if, if need be. But... Um, we're not really too fussed about how we fund it. We try to find an we try to find an intelligent way to fund it. Right, the bank is willing to fund you, then that's 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 great news for if you can use debt to finance that and then pay it off over time. Well, if you've done a lot of deals as we have, and you're very very good partner to your bank and and have a high quality reputation for the way you conduct yourself, and you have a competitive advantage around financing and structuring, and we're very good at that. We have deep understanding of how to run these firms. And that's a huge advantage to our partners because they get access to better capital structure. And frankly, people that really know how to run their firms better for them. They don't have to change anything. They're just running the businesses better with our help. And they just basically earn more owning. You know, the bottom line is our partners earn more owning 49% of the firm than they would earn if they owned 100% of the firm. You can't, in our game, it's you know, we're not financially engineering our way to success. We are operationally, fundamentally improving the underlying businesses so that they are stronger, more profitable businesses with a better growth profile over the next 50 years and more dominant in their region. And, and we think that's exciting. We love that. Like I'm hands-on, you know, in that way with my team in a way that, say, your mongers and Buffets haven't been. Um, but we love improving these businesses because... You know, we care about our people. We want the best of them. And if we can show them how to, you know, make a little change that makes a difference, then, then we will. So uh, I'm the I'm a partner in this firm. You know, you go and raise a million from the bank. You pay us, me and my partner, the a million dollars. We get that cash in our, in our pocket. You own 51% of the business. We then own 49%, but we're actually earning more than, you know, after a couple of years. Now, if you're any good, you've paid off your mortgage, your home mortgage. Maybe you put some in your fund, you know, super fund. You know, if you buy some KPG stock, you'll probably do pretty well out of that in the future. So we give you the cash. You get that generally in Australia tax-free. In most jurisdictions, pay a little bit of capital gains tax or you get it tax-free. You go off, buy some of our stock, pay off your house, put some money in your super fund, and you commit to working with us for the next 10 years. Or What percentage of, the, of those partners actually own K KPG stock? Most of them do. Some are more enlightened than others. Um, a lot of accounts are sceptical about the stock market generally, so I don't always buy as much stock as they later tell you they should have. Um, but we don't pressure anyone to buy our stock. You know, we're not a stock promoter. We frankly don't care if anyone buys our stock. We simply made the stock available to people that share our values and want to come on that journey with us. Um, we're not in the promotion business. Now, I do interviews like this or podcasts, because people ask me and I think it's helpful um, to meet people and share what we know. Um, but I genuinely, I'm not here to promote the stuff. So that, that debt that you raised, is that, how is that structured between the, 
me as a partner and you as a parent company in terms of guarantees and, and it's, in it's in the sub and it's guaranteed by the partners all of us generally the operating partners right so you include as a parent company as well would obviously guarantee that um generally not it's generally in the operating sub well so if me if i'm a partner i would i basically get a bunch of debt also my balance sheet then as a that i have to guarantee well, I get paid out the cash, but I have to... Yeah, you get the cash. But remember, you told me about your great firm, right? So you're just standing behind what you told me. So that's no problem because you already told me how great your firm was. I've committed that I'm not taking any cash out of the business. I'm just paying the debt off. So seems fair to me. Right, and they have to then pay that debt off but from their cash for the opco and the rest they get is the... The debt, the debt comes... It gets the, the debt that's on my 51% gets paid... That's on the KPG 51%. gets paid off by the profit share of the 51%. Right. So there's very deep alignment in the model. You try to sell me a firm that you tell me is great. You know, you, you're worried about its future financial performance. I probably don't want to invest with you. But we're very much about standing behind what, what we say. They get worried, though, that they're, do, they're almost getting paid out cash now, but they're taking on a massive mortgage on the, on the business, effectively. No, it's on the business. Remember that someone's already told you their awesome business plan, right? I've already told you that the firm's awesome and that I'd be very lucky to buy into it. It's no different to a young partner buying. Let's say I used to be the young partner. I come, I say, hey, well, can I buy into the firm? And the partners would say, yes, you can buy 10%. You have to borrow the money and pay it back. Okay. So I'm coming along. I'll say, I'll borrow the money. I'll pay it back. No worries. But you guys told me what the business was and what the financial projections were, so I think you should stand behind it. It's no different to taking a company public with three-year projections. If you're a director of a public company, you take that company public, you put three-year projections up, you have to stand behind it. So what's the difference? It's just that our, our industry can hide in the shadows and tell you a story and then not stand behind it. We don't do that. That's not who we are. And what happens if the business doesn't go well? What happens to that debt and the value of the business? Well, why would the business not go well? These are accounting firms. If you die, we're insured, so that's okay. Um, what else could go wrong? Out the, the insurer just pays out for that. Pays out the debt, yeah. So we insure for the debt in, in the event of a catastrophe. We know the tax system's not going anywhere. So we're not going to worry about do that. something crazy and, 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 you know, lose all their customers for beer and, I don't know, do some well, we're, ridiculous. We're, we're not, yeah, so firstly, we don't partner with crazy people. Secondly, we don't think that there's anything crazy you can really do um, that we're aware of. You know, you could have a nervous breakdown. You could be become drug addicted you could become a gambler or a drunk they're typically in most partnership agreements that if you become any of those things you have to exit the partnership so they're reasonably able to be anticipated as disasters but we think often past behavior is a good precursor to future behavior when it comes to behavior anyway and so we're careful not to partner with people with those issues so we you know we don't say nothing can go wrong but we're we do think that we can mitigate a lot of risk. Now, we've got many partners so that if somebody was to, to leave or die or something, then we'd expect that somebody can step in to look after those clients. And look, my mindset is that of a chief risk officer. Our business is built on taking risk away. We just don't take any risk. If we think this, that this is risky, you know, right from the beginning, I read a book behind me, Warren Buffett Way, you know, how to two-stage dividend discount model, how to value your business, what's an appropriate discount rate, the 30-year bond rate. If you're within your circle of confidence, doing something you've done 60 times, 
and not burying the structure. So I'm trying to do risk-free deals, i.e. Um, not do things that we don't know how to do, not to, not do them in a different way. And so often when people say, oh, could you do it this way or could you do it that way? I say, well, I don't know. You could do it anyway, but we've done it 63 times in a particular way that has predictable outcomes for all stakeholders. So we think that maybe we should just stick to doing it that way. We'll keep improving it, but we don't radically change. When has an acquisition gone wrong in the past? Um, if we've had people make misrepresentations to us, um, we we have had situations where the revenue has been lower than than we were told. But if we have a you know ten, twenty, thirty, forty percent retention for a couple of years, then that's again unlikely to make any real impact. Um, so we've had two or three where you know there's been a twenty percent decline in what we were told, but we had a thirty percent retention. So we have never lost any capital on any deal that we've ever done. And I'm proud of that, um, simply because of the way we structure. And we're very, very careful. We do due diligence on a million-dollar deal as if it's a billion-dollar deal. We really do the work. We're careful and we're very risk-averse. Well, you mean, so they would, just, they would just misrepresent how many clients they had or more just lie about the number of revenue they have? Or is that when it's going no, they might have been told by a big client that that client was going to leave, so they'll do the deal and then I'll come to you six months later and say, oh, look, sorry, the client's leaving, and then you go back through the emails where you talk to the client and they say, yeah, I told them a year ago I was leaving. You know, we've had that before. That's okay. People lie, it turns out, but, you know, very few of the people that have joined us have ever engaged in that behaviour. So you've never lost of that debt that you put out? You've never lost capital on? Never. Never once. So that's rule number one, right? Don't lose money. And rule number two is don't lose money. And we will not do a deal. Don't, don't forget rule number one. <laughs> yeah, like, I've just like rule one, don't lose money. Two, don't lose money. Three, don't lose money. I'm very aggressive about the idea of not losing money. I had no money to lose, right? When I started, I had no money. I couldn't afford to lose any money. Exactly. Right? I still don't regard myself as, as having any money. I don't like doing things that have any prospect of losing any money. I'm very careful. As you do scale, very paranoid. Can your bank continue to finance all of that so you don't have to put up cash? Yeah, the banks, the banks like us a lot, and there's numerous banks who would like to do business with us, um, which is great. Um, we've had an excellent banking relationship since inception, and I expect, you know, based on the interest from banks generally, that that we can fund growth. But again. You know, you've got to treat your banks and your lawyers and all of your partners as partners and treat them well. When you're doing these transactions, bro, like what you mentioned, you're paranoid. Like what, what are you kind of look, what really is like in the back of your mind about worrying you, if there's anything when, you, when, you, when you're going, doing a DD for these deals? So I'm looking at the person. Do they do what they say they will do, right? Is this a person for others or are they self-centered? Do they do what they say they're going to do? So if you tell me you're coming to a meeting and you don't come, that's okay once. But if you do it repeatedly through the process or you say you're going to send a piece of information, little things. Oh, yeah, I'll send the copy of the insurance policy and then you don't send it. And then you get asked again and you don't send it. And then you get asked again and you don't send it. And then you finally send it. I, you, I look for patterns of people's behavior. You know, Do they believe that teams can do more than individuals. So these are the three big things. You know, person for others, do what you say, part of a team. 
you know, do what you say is, are they somebody that keeps their promises? People who are careful with their word, they say they're going to do something and they, they just won't break their word. They're the people we're trying to meet. And people who are sort of unfaithful in little things are unfaithful in big things. So if you don't, if you're not attentive in the little stuff, you're not attentive in the big stuff. That's, you know, these are sort of insights that I, that I have. People have had a lot of drama with other people, typically dramatic. Um, and we don't want drama. Um, people that talk about everything they did as if everything was great that they did, but everything everyone else did was bad, worry me, you know, because businesses are built by teams. It's normally the quiet people that make huge contributions. So you want to be a person that notices people, that thanks people, that's gracious towards other people. How you treat my PA? How you treat the junior people in our team that are doing the, the, the DD? I've seen people over time treat some of our people terribly. And, you know, you, you should judge people based on how they, they, they treat people who are in lower um, positions, you know, that have lower status positions. You should judge them based on how they treat the waiter, how they treat, you know, the guy at the front door, whatever. So uh, I'm just trying to find good people that care about other people that do, that are fastidious about doing what they're committed to doing and that really believe that together we can do really great things. So uh, that's what I'm paying attention to in particular. I, I, I look at their attitude towards money. I... I see whether they're ripping their other partners off, whether they're, you know, I basically have the view that if you're unkind to your existing partners, why would you be kind to me? That if you're unfriendly to, you know, that if you're greedy towards other, your existing partners, you're probably greedy towards me. That if you are prepared to steal, you know, clients from another firm to come to us, you'll probably steal from us at some point. It's all basic, but I've done so much of it. I've just got a good antenna. And then... We've designed our agreements to be very, very aggressive um, and very, very punitive in, in, in a number of areas. But we tell people up front that they're very aggressive and very punitive in these areas. Which areas? Oh, if you steal a client or if you breach confidentiality or if you breach non-competition, they're very punitive. Um, but I tell them that up front. Now, people who come to you and they want to retire and they want to be part of our group, they're like, yeah, no worries, Brett. I don't, I don't care about any of that. This is what I want to do. And they sign. People who have dark hearts, they carry on and shout and scream and tell me I'm unreasonable. And then I know they're there, there as triggers. You know, um, they're there to poke the bear and see if the bear roars and carries on. Um, they're deliberately antagonistic um, because we're trying to discover the values of people. Um, and if you get between people and money, they they often show you the value. So that's what we try to do. It's a it's an odd way to do things. Most people think we're trying to get every client to join, that we're trying to get every firm to join. We're not. We're just trying to find people that share our values and you know want to want to solve the same problem, want to be part of the same mission, share our values, and see the vision. A can-do people don't always tell us what we can't do, and yeah, that's, that's how we do it. Remember, I interviewed some of the world, you know, I interviewed some of Australia's most prominent people when I was 22, multiple prime ministers, billionaires, all sorts of people, heads of churches, politicians, comedians. I have got a very highly developed sense of people through these strange experiences I have, I have had. You know, I wrote to Warren Buffett. He wrote back to me. A beautiful letter. Amazing. 
And he was the second richest guy in the world. He could have just ignored me, but he didn't. And so if you ignore me, or if you treat me worse than he treated me, that doesn't speak well to your character. And he did that for me in 2006. So this is years and years ago where I had this confidence that came from, oh, hang on, if this guy's good to me and writing me a nice letter, then why is this other person so rude? And so, Do you think it's that attuneness, that, that skill you have in, in understanding who someone really is and their value set? And That's my superpower. I'm a people person. I love people. I just love people. It's not, it's not, you know, you're not, top, you know, you're not, you know, Harvard graduate and, and, you know, come from a rich family that's, that's kind of, you know, always at the top of the, these institutions. It's more just you've had these interesting collection of experiences, you know, run these books, meeting these people early on and found yourself in the accountancy business. And yeah, like think of it like this, Will. I'm 22. I'm unemployed. I'm trying to write this book. I made five and a half thousand phone calls to get people to talk to me. But right? How did you even come about this idea? Like you're running employed, like why don't you just go and get a job? <laughs> I read this book called Think and Grow Rich. Oh, I'll try and explain it. Like I'd been the kid that came first in everything, right? And then I lost this job. And I was like, why am I, like I had the dream of in an investment bank. And I thought, this sucks. Like everyone else thinks it's great. But I think this is horrible. All these people obsessed with status and money and they're horrible. And then I'm with all these 50-year-old guys who've had their lives destroyed in their own minds anyway. And I thought, there's got to be a better way. And then my dad gave me this book, Think and Grow Rich, and it said, find people that have been successful and ask them what they've been successful at. So I thought I had this permission. I sort of had this big sort of relief that, oh, well, I did what everyone else told me to do, and now I've lost this job. And I have six weeks in this outplacement where, I, where they, were, they were paying for me to have an office and a clinical psychologist and and a mailing service, and I just thought, I'm just going to write to people and ask them, like, what should I do? Because I didn't know. And I just knew that I wasn't like other people. I knew that. But I didn't know what to do with my strange abilities. And I, I was very impacted by these people. I'll never forget Bob Bork. He was a former, probably the most successful prime minister in Australia's modern history. And he was a Rhodes Scholar, graduate of law, graduate of Oxford. And he met me, he spent three and a half hours with me, an hour interview, two and a half hours of chewing the fat. He said, Brett, this is the greatest thing you could be doing. Anything I can do to help, let me know. And later he did this TV interview with me that he never had to do. It was so, it, it helped sell all the books. And he was just so gracious. And I thought, well, you know, he got on national television. He said, you know, I asked him, why did you do this interview with this young guy? And he said, because Brett's got chutzpah, right? And I just thought, you know, if this guy can believe in me and think that I've got something going for me, then I'm not all bad. Like I'm, you know, and that made a big difference. And I just decided that no matter who you are, whether you've been the prime minister or whatever you think you are, you have an ability to impact other people positively or negatively. And you get to choose how you impact other people. And I was reading all this stuff that said that you get to choose your attitude. You get to choose whether you plan. You get to choose your goals. You get to make a difference in your own life and life of other people. And I just said, okay, well, what are the two ways to live? And that was, you know, that, that was a big turning point. So, so, so that when you lost your job at 22, you know, and you was kind of on that track to go and be an investment banking and do that kind of traditional route, you know, so like how much did that really affect you personally in, in your own ego and, you know, being then 
without a job? Was it a massive reset? Or how, how did they, how did you take that? Yeah, um, a big reset. But look, firstly, something had happened. Two things had happened. So I'm in this bank, and I have my Warren Buffett Way book in my bag. And one of the bankers there came to me and said, why do you read these books that are written by people just to make money? You just write books to tell you how to make money. And I was like, huh, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you're reading this book. It's just written by somebody with no money to try and tell you how to make money. And I said, no, no, this book's about this guy, Warren Buffett. Like, he's amazing. Do you know who Warren Buffett is? And they were like, no. And I was like, okay, so I'm in the wrong place because, like, you guys are meant to be like the oracles of all wisdom and you don't even know who this guy is, like masters of the universe. And then I was in a, in a meeting with one of two of the bankers and one of the junior bankers, my senior, but more junior than the director, who was a wonderful guy, he came out of this meeting with one of the wealthiest guys in Australia. And this guy said to me, you know, that guy, he's just a fucking greengrocer. And I just really admired this multi-billionaire who'd built this incredible business. And I didn't admire him because he was a multi-billionaire. I admired him because he built this incredible business. It was a function of his vision. And, um, and I thought, I never forget, I thought to myself, I'm in the wrong place. I want to be like that guy who's building something. And I'm here giving an advice, building financial models. Listen to this clown who thinks this guy who's building something, you know, is, is below him because he doesn't have the same academic training. It was horrible. And I, it just hit me. And then I lost my job. I sort of got rejected by the fish that I'd sort of mentally rejected. And, you know, the John West rejects, sort of thing. And then I'm in this outplacement and it felt like this big relief because I'm trying to be this person that I'd been told you should be when you're, you know, a person everything. And I, and I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, shit, you know, what do I do? And so I wrote these letters and I'm just ringing people every day and I'm starting to get some interviews and meet people. And what I was finding was that the people at the top, like the very top, not halfway up, the top, who'd kicked all their goals and achieved all their hopes and dreams, they were so generous to me. Like, I couldn't believe it. They were like, yeah, Brett, you know, you set your vision, you got your goal, and this is what I did, and this is how it happened. It's unbelievable. And I, I'd mainly been around people who were telling me, you know, to sort of sit down and shut up and, no, you can't think that and you can't do this. It was transformative. And so, you know, then I saw these guys who were really in this bad place. And I was like, what do I have to lose if I'm just, if I just play, you know, an authentic innings? I love cricket and I love being both of them and as a young guy. And I thought, well, if the ball's short and it's on your eyebrow, then it's always bowling it at your head. Really, whether it's the first ball of the game or middle of the game, I loved how both of them would just come out and hit it for six on the first ball of the innings. You know? and so I thought to myself, well, you need to just be authentic as to who you are and try and find, you know, build your career in a way that reflected that. Now, I went back into accounting firms and I was trying to share these great ideas with the boss and improve the business that I was working in. I was trying to run my, my team really well and be positive about difference you could make but I was working under people who just didn't care didn't they were just negative and self-satisfied and you know I eventually thought I would leave the industry <laughs>
<laughs> so, so, so you, when you had that moment of your rejection and kind of re- big reset, you know, decide to read and, and then go and interview all these, you know, prominent people, you had the child accounting background or degree. So then you went, you found yourself back into the accounting industry and then you was like, oh shit, I can change a bunch of the stuff. And then eventually, yeah, I thought I could become a partner. You, like, I, what I learned was you achieve everything through people, you got to work with people, that everything that you want to achieve, you need to help other people achieve. So if you want to achieve your goals, you have to focus on helping other people achieve their goals. And then I realized that I liked helping people in the accounting space because I really thought you could help people. And um, I thought of my dad who'd had a business and the difference a great account would have made to him. And I thought, okay, I can really make a difference here. But I, was, I found through three firms that they, the accountants were just there for the forms and themselves. They actually weren't there for the client. And then within each of those firms, there are a small number of people, maybe 5% of people that really shared that ethos. But they were frustrated because nobody seemed to think that way. And then finally, like my, you know, I set the firm up with my mate Scotty to help him, and that was going well. And then my boss came with a silly offer. That wasn't what he promised. And I thought, I can't work with people that lie. And then a number of my colleagues said, why couldn't you just start a firm for us like you did with him? And I was just like, I've had enough of all these people in BS. And then my wife said, Brett, you're really good at it. Why don't you just start a firm? And so Beck and I started so- and you mentioned your your dad there and your dad's experience with with the what, what what did you learn from your dad and um... well he got an accountant recommended by an accounting firm into the business they embezzled half a million bucks in the middle of a recession and it really damaged the business and I saw how it damaged dad's sense of self because he was like oh I should have been able to know but when somebody commits fraud in a business it's almost impossible to know and that's that affected me I thought you know like I don't I don't want other people to be in that position we could do the work in a way that would really help people. Um, and so for me, it was a mission. Like intellectually, it's like, could these good ideas, like what I learned from Buffett was really, could you behave well and do things from the right motive, the right ethos, and could that have an even better outcome than behaving like all these other miserable buggers? And, and I thought it could, and it has, and it does. It's the difference. Did your dad... Passed down Buffett and Mungo, and that would, was he was he into that? Dad was the one who gave me Carnegie Carnegie's book, and Think and Grow Rich. He gave me those books, and it was those books that that led me to read a lot more. I was just a price at eighteen, and somehow I found common stock, common profits at um, just at Dimmicks in a big bookstore, and I started reading his book, and he talked. There was an actual endorsing comment on that book by Warren Buffett. There might still be an endorsing comment on that book. Yeah, there is. So this version of the book, the while they've been publishing forever, had Buffett on it. And I thought this book was so great. I loved Scuttlebutt. I thought this was amazing, this book. I loved it. I loved this book. Like this book changed my life. I loved it. Yeah, I first published it, first published in 2003. Like republished. I got an old scabby first published. I think 96. Did you learn much from your dad, you know, about, about running a business then and, and, yeah, and like that, the business with, side of stuff? Yeah, so dad's a people guy. So he was great with people and very, very hard worker and really good to people and good with people. He was a sales director of his, of his business and he was great with people, great at selling, hard work, very hard working. And so he was English 
came to Australia at 25, but very old-fashioned values. So, you know, your words, your bond, your reputation matters. Do what you say you do. Give people proper service. You know, shine your shoes. Sit up straight. Do things properly. So he'd been in the British Navy and he was just a hard-working, serious guy because of the era that he'd come out of. Um, and I admired him a lot. And he was always the person who told me I could achieve whatever, whatever I put my mind to. So he's, 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 you know, as it turns out, he was a modern psychologist in that he said, you, you know, if you put in the effort and you have faith in the outcome, you'll, you'll achieve your goals if you keep working at it. So he just believed you could outwork most problems. You know, I've tried to find a better answer, but I haven't found one. So look at the future then. How many companies maximum can you acquire per year today? Yeah, so we don't think of it that way. We just think of how many firms can we meet that want to choose to improve their firms and make more of a it's difference. It's just you making the deals, right? It's just you signing, it's you doing, making, yeah. leading them. Yeah, I've got a theme. So what I'm doing, so look, first we've got to find people who want to choose to be part of what we're doing and believe that we can help them make more impact through their business. That's the first thing. So we do a lot to get to outreach to people to share that message and and we get, a, we get a lot of incoming inquiry, which is great. What I'm doing is I'm scaling. So Lawrence Cunningham's joined our board. Lawrence is a deputy chairman of Constellation. He's introduced me to some great people from Constellation who've taught me a lot, done a lot of reading on them. And what I'm trying to do is have our partners now take responsibility for scouting firms in different areas and incentivizing them to do that. And by Constellation. Yeah, by Constellation. And now what I'm not doing is I'm not, I'm not delegating the, the capital allocation or the final terms of the deal. What I'm doing is running that program as scouts and and saying, go and scout these firms, meet these firms, bring them to us. This is the stuff to discuss, this is the stuff not to discuss, and this is how the process will work. And that's working well. So we've done our first four deals through two partners that are scouting. Um, and then the small ones will come through, a million here, half a million there, half a million there, seven hundred there. They get incentivized for that or yeah, I'm putting a scouting program together for them. But basically, we're going to pay them a little bit of money into a pot. We're going to buy KPG shares, so it won't be dilutive. And we'll give them that pot of shares at the end of 10 years, and we think that pot could be quite large. And we think that'll work pretty well. It won't cost us anything, which is nice. Kind of similar to Constellation as well, where they get the they pay out the cash comp and get the the, the partners. That's the idea. Now, I think I could find a dozen partners. They can take on the scouting. You'll hear it. You'll see us soon announce that we're building a sort of leadership council to help us grow Australia and, and help us do more scouting. So I'd like to think that we can significantly scale our ability to bring firms into the group. But again, we're not anxious about size. We know that the, our industry is anxious about size. We want to maintain high standards and and get the people that want to be part of what These we're scouts, doing. Brett, they're not they're not your 60, 65 year old retirees. No, they're in there. People have been partners. So basically I've gone to the partners that have been partners for more than 10 years and said, Would you be willing to go out? If one of the partners came to me and said, Brett, you know, I want to earn more money. I want to I want to spread the good news and I want to go and find more firms. And he's from the country. So I gave him country New South Wales to as a as a region to focus on. And then we started doing the correspondence for him, making him the contact person, and he's talking to firms and, and and going and meeting with them, and he's been very well received. He, you know, he comes from that region, and and that's working really well. Um, 
So I believe that there's a dozen partners with more than 10 years' experience in the group, that 10 years' experience within Kelly Partners, that we can turn into scouts that can help us to go and find more firms and scale the acquisition engine, you know, partnership engine um, within the business. You might have to grow a, 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 a long beard like like Mark Leonard then over the next the next five years. <laughs> That's the plan, be like Mark. Um, I think he's got a lot to recommend him. Um, including his cool beer, beard. Um, my wife won't let me grow it any longer than this. But um, but basically, we think that they have set a good standard and a good model for what is possible for us in this industry. And we'll just quietly go about doing that. How do you compare accounting to software and that programmatic nature of the, the two? I think they're analogous if the depth of your understanding is is, is the same, you know. Simple as that. Like, it's the fact that they know what they're doing that makes the difference more than the target itself. The target itself is helpful in that it's in, in a business that's not going anywhere. It's going to be like that for a long time. I think accounting is the same. And, you know, my sense is that, again, diamonds under your feet, you've got to play your circle of competence. And, and even if we thought vertical market software was better, that's not what we're, you know, that's not, that's not our mission on earth. And, like, at the end of the day, I was asked the other day, you know, what do you think the difference is that makes a difference? The very deep commitment that you have to what you're doing makes the most difference. And so it's not the asset you buy. It's your commitment to being, you know, to the journey of actually making that a better asset, a better company, a, a better thing. Now, if you buy something that's no good, well, you know, you can't fix it. But um, we're not doing that. And we think that, you know, we think that, we can do many, many hundreds of these deals over time. In Australia? We think we can do hundreds in Australia. We think we can do you know, hundreds in the US that we will target imminently. Um, but we think we can do hundreds in the UK that we will target imminently. So we do plan to imminently share that we you know, we are working on growing into the US and the UK. Well, so we used 70 odd million, roughly say, last year in, in Australia. I mean, what's a what's a what's a ten year target roughly in your own mind in Australia, do you, like revenue wise? So think about our business in this way: we've doubled the business on average every three and a bit years, five times in a row. So when people say to me, "Well, what are you going to do over the next ten years?" I say, "Well, we're probably going to continue to try and double the business every three and a bit years, forever." So. You know, we're at 80, 80 million, say. We want to get to 160, 320, 640. That's no real revelation. We think we can continue to double the business continually for a long, long time. It's harder to scale when you're, a, when, you, when you're, you know, if you're buying five businesses a year to 30 businesses a year well, and, a bit, and a bigger scale, right, dollars-wise. To a degree, but, you know, PwC in Australia does two billion in revenue. Each of the big four do two billion in Australia. Well, they're serving big companies, though, right? They're serving like the. No, that's, that's right. But our sector is gigantic. There's twelve and a half billion of revenue in Australia. So the US market's ten times that size. The British market's three times that size. So we think that the addressable market is, you know, twelve and a half here, hundred and twenty-five in the US, probably thirty-five in the UK. And so, you know, we're talking about 185 billion plus Canada plus New Zealand plus plus plus. 
So that's all dollars spent on accounting, right? That's dollars spent in our sector. But you probably target what 10, 5, 10 percent of that given the SMEs. That's right. So at the SME sector is twelve and a half billion that we're aware of in Australia. So if we could acquire if we if we thought of those firms as ten percent of that, you know, one point two five billion, and you want to buy ten percent of that, that's another hundred and twenty five million. So you'd like to think that there's already 10 firms roughly in Australia with more than 250 million of revenue. We're on a run rate of over 80. We'll get to 100 soon enough. Um, we've got, we're going to grow out of finance, insurance and wealth. That should be 10, 50% of our revenues. So you'd like to think that today's business, you know, is somewhere akin to 120, 150 million on a run rate basis eventually. And there's so many firms that have grown not just here but globally. So there's no real reason we can't grow. There's no rush. You know, that's something that distinguishes us. Doing things well, we call going slow to, you know, go fast ultimately. Um, so we're not in a rush, but we're very focused and we do work very hard. We love it. Um, but we'll just do it in a controlled fashion. And we're very keen to basically help private businesses in Australia grow into the UK, into Europe and the US in terms of export markets. And we don't think we should tell our clients to do things we're not prepared to do ourselves. So ultimately, we want to lead our clients to, to be able to see the global opportunity because we think the world is going to increasingly become flat. So we want to position ourselves for that world that we see over the next five to ten years. Very excited about the opportunity. Very excited. And do, you, do you have a target return, cash cash on cash return that you have for these acquisitions that you tell your scouts? And well, we just want to make a 35% EBITDA on every, after partner REM on every dollar that we turn. We want to lock up less than 50 days. We want to have 100% cash conversion. We're not big into IRRs. We're big into cash on cash payback periods. You mean, well, and the, so the debt, you, you, that debt that you use, you include that as the cash that you're, the capital you're spending, right? Yeah, we want to pay them, you know, higher firms and have payback periods five years or less. And we want to do it continually. And we know that where we operate is too grubby for big guys to bother with. They don't like it. It's too small. We've got to actually do some work. So, you know, we think we've got an advantage that we've got deep understanding. I've been doing it for 30 years on the accountant. I'm heavily invested and aligned with my partners who own, say, 10% of a listed company. I've done the same model since inception over and over and over again. We refined it over time. We think we have more understanding of this space than anyone we know. And most people who meet us acknowledge that. And we... You know, you should judge us on our ability to stay focused on our circular competence. You know, in these international markets, it'll be first bullets and cannonballs. We'll buy a small firm, we'll try and test our playbook, and then we'll roll out other small firms. We'll do nothing that bets the farm ever because we're hyper-risk sensitive and we don't like losing money. And I've got a lot of my money invested in the business. We'll ultimately try and get a capital structure that's appropriate for global growth and we'll try and make sure that we can with our quality shareholders over a long, long period of time. How do, you, how do you think about leverage and capital structure? Well, in the US, the big PE deals that we're seeing happening in our industry, they're gearing at three and a half to four and a half times EBITDA, and we're geared at less than one times EBITDA. So I saw recently that Eisner Amper PE deal have 800 million of revenue and 80 million of EBITDA. We've got 80 million of revenue and 30 million of EBITDA. So, you know, ultimately, our industry is obsessed with size, but we are with yeah, one times EBITDA, right, roughly, that, but also that debt is actually not necessarily secured with the parent. It's with mainly with the... Right. Yeah, it's with the, it's with the special vehicles, with the opcos, because that's where the business is done, that's where the assets are. 
Um, but I'm not, I'm not too worried about, you know, I, I just believe in doing risk-free transactions. I won't take any risk. I'm not interested in taking any risk. Stick to what we know. Do it over and over and over and over again. Seems pretty hard to lose. Well, I think you can lose in life, um, sometimes through bad luck or ill health or calamity. But you shouldn't exacerbate your risk of, you know, certain loss by doing things that you don't understand. So, you know, we have to guard against hubris. We have to guard against believing that we know things that we don't know. We have to guard against going too fast. How'd you do that, though? How'd you, how'd you, how'd you keep your head screwed on if you... You have to stay humble. You just, you just hang around people that are smarter than you, wiser than you. And, you know, I go to the US and often, you know, I was on Twitter today and somebody's like, you know, you write about these books. You publish this stuff about other books. You know, you shouldn't do that. And I'm like, <laughs> what? I'm trying to hold myself. I'm trying to hold myself publicly to the highest possible standards. So when I say that, you know, I very much admire Will Thorndike and his work in The Outsiders. These are the eight greatest CEOs by stock market performance in history. I'm trying to put my mentality in the in the in the presence of these people that I admire. Well, some investors said to you, you shouldn't kind of be, you shouldn't say that type of stuff or be come across as pro promotional and... Yeah, I think we're promotional. I'm not promotional. I don't, I, I'm being, I like the rumble of holding myself publicly accountable. You know, these yes. books I have behind me, Eli Broad, I love that man. I never got to meet him, but I admire him so much. A man who built two Fortune 500 companies. I try to live up to his standards, right? I look at Michael Hill, Buffett, Schwartzman, 100 Baggers, all the blokes in The Outsiders. I'm looking at people like Imelda Roach, great female leader, just a great leader. She mentioned she's a woman, as people I don't think I noticed. I look at all the people that I have on my picture behind me. These are all the great people I admire, first as people and then as business people. And that's to try and make sure that I never think that I know very much. Because the beginning of wisdom is to know that you don't know very much. So that's your that's your strategy to kind of keep your head screwed on, rather than like you're not you're not you're not trying to sell. No, I don't give a shit if you buy my shares. I really don't give two hoots. You can go and buy some hopeless company that doesn't really care about what it's doing. Um, where the CEO is a promoter, I'm trying to hold myself publicly to high standards, and that's you know some people think that's risky, but that's the way my psychology works. I you know. I've just, I'm just trying to build something really excellent and conduct ourselves in a really excellent way that we can be long-term proud of. And I could have stayed a private company and just made tons of money in private for myself. Um, but that's not, that's not my driver. My driver is to try and make a positive impact in our industry and change things for the better. I'm happy to do it transparently. And anyone that wants to come for the ride, welcome. And... In the meantime, I'm just trying to stay very focused on hanging around good people that, that care about me and my family and our business and our people and our clients to try and um, do the right, you know, do things the right way for the long, long term. And that's, you know, it's easy to, I've seen a lot of people over time get carried away with just fast cars and silliness. Um, nothing wrong with fast cars. I think cars are cool. But, um, it's more important to be proud of the way that you behave. And what, what interests you in your spare time, Brett? Than cars? You know, what do you, what do you, what do you do? I just love reading. 
I like to exercise and read. I love to listen to podcasts and read. I love Will Thorndike's 50X on Teledyne at the moment. It's bloody amazing. Love it. Um, I love ideas. I love people. I like to see people exercise, read books. And the reason I love reading books is it's like I'm in conversation with amazing people. So I just love to read. So any minute I can get. Yesterday was Sunday. So I did everything I had to do with the kids, went to church and blah, 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 and did all that. And then I was like, right, it's 3 o'clock, leave me alone. I have to read. I sit there and I read for three hours and I'm the happiest man in the universe. Um, so, you know, I want to challenge myself to be the best that I can be and I want to encourage our people to be the best that they can be and try and build a model and a business that, you know, helps people unleash, you know, their, their full capacity. There's people and professional. That's what it's about. It's fun. I love it. It's good fun. Yeah. No, I get it. I'm, I'm the same. And I saw, you know, with the with the cash flow down there, you know, there's a more cash flow outflow for, for CapEx and, or property. You know, is there anything you can, you're doing there that's been unique or, or new over the last 18 months, spending on buying property? Yeah. So a few things we're doing. We've always believed that. The business is firstly about just attracting great people. So we've, like an omni-channel retailer, we're spending a lot of money on our digital and a lot of money on our physical presence. We've reduced the size of our space but increased the quality of them and their amenity to people so that they're very attractive to people. I did. I started right at the beginning. Pre-COVID, I'd written a 100-page lookbook. Basically, I want to have really attractive, fantastic places for people to come to work when they want to come to work. I want to have the best digital experience for our clients and our people, and we're spending money on that. Um, it's no more money than we spent in the past. You know, we IPO'd, we've probably done a lot of that been 10 years before, five years before. You know, I love Bernard know the LVMH founder. He just says, long term, we're going to win. We're just going to out-invest our competitors. So our, our play is to continue to invest in the physical infrastructure, the digital infrastructure, our people offer in our team and build out basically a global brand, digital and physical one and work, workforce that nobody else can get anywhere near matching. And we're just trying to build big moat by out-investing our competition. We've done it always, and we'll continue to do it. It might scare a few people and spend some money on on uh, things that make sense, but um, you know, our shareholders today are banking investments that I made years ago. I went to Harvard five years in a row with YPO. Recently, I was trying to build a relationship with the bank. One of the professors that had coached me for years at Harvard is on their board. That was pretty helpful. Our shareholders never had to pay for that because I paid for that myself years before we listed, right? I built relationships all over the world for years and years and years that are proving very helpful for the business and will for many, many years because I've always had a very long-term vision of what we're trying to do with the business. We're trying to build a very major, substantial business over a long period of time that can last 100 years. You know, the Probably one of the most wonderful books I've ever read is Built to Last. We give every person at Kelly Partners since the very first day we started a copy of Good to Great by Jim Collins. But the book that most influenced me was Built to Last in terms of trying to build, you know, what would you do if you're trying to build a 100-year organisation? And so we're only 17 years in and we're still building, building, building to try and think how, think forward about, you know, what is the type of organisation that can last 100 years? Do you have to have deep purpose, deep sense of mission about what you're doing? We think that that mission to have people less stressed about their money, more in control and confident about where they're moving towards in their businesses is a universal mission 
applicable in all Western countries. Do you see yourself 90 odd years old, you know, chairman of KPG? Well, if it, like, to, to the degree that I can inspire people to be the best they can be, I'll continue to do what I'm doing. And I find, you know, Charlie Munger was so sharp at this year's Berkshire meeting. I found him so inspiring. I, I was levitating on my way out. I absolutely loved it because of the person that he is and the age that he is. I thought, you know, what would be so bad to end up like that? So for me, to have such a clear vision of how you want to be when you're 98, you know, and it's a blessing to live to any long, you know, to live a long life. It's even more a blessing to have meaningful work and colleagues that you care about and, and, and that want you around. So to me, like, I had a great CEO I spoke to pre-IPO and he said, look, Brett, when we were doing 100 million and I was writing 20 million of the business, I could move the dial on the business, but now we're doing 5 billion. He goes, I had to learn that I couldn't physically, personally do anything to move the dial. And so I had to rely on inspiring other people to join the, join the club and join the, join the journey. And so for me, that was pre-IPO. I could see that if we wanted to build a major business, that I would have to conduct myself in a way that would be attractive to people who are serious about growing something substantial. And that doesn't mean being cuddly and, you know, all of that. It just means being authentically who you are and being driven to really make a difference for people. Now, I've been very good with our colleagues here at attracting amazing people. It's a thing I frankly make proud of. And to the degree that I can continue to do that, then I'll do this forever. I love it. I really love it. And, you know, my wife knows it. She said to me, in April, we are in New York and we had so many people, amazing people we met over a few weeks there. And she's like, Brett, you've got all these people who want to do things with you. Why do you just say no? And I'm like, well, because I don't want to put a burden on the family. That, you know, makes it so, makes myself so busy that it's ultimately net negative for our life. And she's like, no, if they want you to help them, just, just do it. Just help them. Like the kids are at an age where they love what we're doing and they, they respect what we're doing. 17, 15, and 10. Next, keen on us growing the business, continuing to grow the business. And so, to the degree that you know what I'm doing is compatible with my family life, good for my health, and continually energizes me, and that I can make a really positive difference to other people, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And we always get asked, I got asked today on Twitter, oh, what about the key man risk? I said, well, it's probably good to have a key man. And if you don't help me, well, I'm confident in the structure and the team that we've built, but the business will be amazing. You know, I met Tim Cook at the Berkshire meeting, which was a highlight, which is very special. And he was very gracious, as the people at the top normally are. But, um, you know, I always reflect that that business is doing pretty well, even though the founder's not there, right? But who would take over after you, Brett, though? Who, I mean, you'd be a yes, big shoes to fill. So the, board has a, the board has a name designated successor. I've been training for nearly a decade. It's documented in all of our partnership agreements and process to ultimately put somebody into, into the exec, like CEO role. And I'm completely confident in the management team that we have. Is it public or is not? Do you have no, we don't tell anyone. But that person, that person knows, the board knows. So the only stipulation I've got is it has to be one of the operating partners. It has to be a chartered accountant that comes through our system. It can't be some random exec that... What's a, a previous or a partner in your system that has run a business and is a channel of accountant has to be someone like that that you're trading in the back. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got at least a dozen of them, more than a dozen, two dozen who have been with me more than a decade, probably three dozen. And I think all of them could could certainly 
um, understand what we do and don't do and why. And that's important. You could, uh, some of the Kelly kids going to be joining KPG? No, I don't worry. I have no aspiration for my kids to be in exact roles in our group. I don't think it's, I don't like nepotism and I don't think it's healthy for a business. So it's important over time that I put myself in a position to be able to help them do whatever they want to do financially and in other ways. But um, I don't have any sort of empire building aspirations. And one last question. I guess to, to last very long, like you said, you have to organize or design your life in a way that allows you to get there, you know, and, and, and survive. How do you think about yeah, longevity and, and what makes it possible for you to, to even have the potential to even to be 90 odd years old and still running or being involved at KPG? How do you organize your life to do that? Yeah, so a few things. Made it a focus, gave up alcohol on the 27th of December, so I just don't drink. Last year? Um, I'll have the yeah, I'll have a drink if somebody, you know, if it's really important, but typically I've had three drinks since the 27th of December. I've averaged nearly 10,000 steps a day ever since. I just said I'll do 10,000 steps a day, so some type of physical activity that I can do anywhere that I am in the world every day. I can also do it with my wife, which is great. So I'm doing less exclusively sort of male, you know, heavy weightlifting and whatnot. Change the weights I lift so that they're lighter and, you know, specifically designed to keep me strong forever. Focus on flexibility. Um, so a lot of physical training. And then mentally make sure I read because I know that reading powers me up and gives me energy. It's just how I am, which is great. It's good to know yourself. Um, I don't work on Sundays. I've never worked on Sundays. Just have a hard rule that I don't work on Sundays. Um, and I've been very aggressive about protecting that time always. Um, I think that's incredibly good for your mental health, just to not just choose a day a week where you just don't work. It doesn't mean I don't think about things, but well, you read. I just won't. Yeah, I read and I just, I'll just fill my day so I don't work. And I make sure my kids and my wife knows to tell me not to work if I'm working. And if, I, if somebody wants me to work, it's got to be really like substantially important, very important. So they're sort of the big bedrocks, you know, in terms of, you know, how to look after yourself physically and emotionally and spiritually and um, mentally, if you like. Probably the last rock is to get a structure ultimately for the whole code, like Buffett has, which is sort of dual class, the right capital structure so that we can grow and not lose control. The only reason I wouldn't do what I'm doing long term is if I, if I didn't have control of the business, I wouldn't stay in the business. Um, I would simply sell the business um, because I'm not interested in being stuck in a bureaucracy like I was as a young guy arguing with people that don't understand what we're doing. Um, and I'm not, these days, I'm not an arguer. I'm a big listener. I engage in conversation and I love to hear what people think, uh, but I basically never argue. And so I just wouldn't wouldn't put myself in that position. But right now you have one structure, right? Yeah, in Australia, you can't have a dual class structure in Australia. You can in the US, UK, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, pretty much everywhere else in the world other than Australia. So a bunch of Scandinavian shareholders mentioned to me that people like Carl Bennett in Sweden and in these dual class structures, and they were like, they were asking whether I would sell them some shares. And my answer is, I won't sell down under 50% because otherwise I won't have control. And so their answer was, why don't you just get a dual class structure so you can sell us some shares? So, you know, we've investigated that. We're having a look at that. If I can get that type of structure, I could, you know, achieve a couple of things, which is, have long-term control of the business, raising capital, do a sell-down, 
improve your liquidity, make sure that I've got no... You know, the biggest thing I've learned about Buffett in the last five years was that Buffett went back to Omaha with $160,000 of capital. So he never had to pay thirty grand for a house and has always lived off the money that he had outside the business. I didn't do that. And so at some point, um, I'll try and get a structure that allows me to have a full Buffett-style structure where we continually reinvest our dividends in growth um, so that we can, we can grow even more strongly. Why well, do you want to liquidate some of your stock to to have that buffer there as well at some point? Yeah. Like ultimately, I'll keep a controlling state, get a dual-class structure, do a sell-down so that I don't need dividends out of the business, um, pay no dividends, if I, you know, if it's achievable. Yeah, I was going to ask you why you pay dividends now. Is that mainly because to fund your, to give yourself a bit of buffer then mainly? Or... So I paid, I paid myself a low salary for five years as a listed company to demonstrate that we set it initially 1% of revenue at IPO and then I haven't had a pay rise for five years. I've done that so that people know that, you know, I would never put myself first. Then I have tried to pay dividends monthly was always what I wanted to do. Because A, it's tax preferred in Australia, but B, I wanted our partners externally, partner shareholders, to get paid on the same basis as our operating partners so that people could understand the structure and that they could appreciate how strong the cash flow is. And that's worked very well because people can see more clearly. You know, Buffett always talked about how does a dollar flow through a PL. And I was just trying to show, attract quality shareholders who could see how a dollar through the PL. Well, EBITDA, your net margin, and you then you pay out the, the minority interest and then dividends, and yeah, that's so, it's so obvious, right? So people can see it. We try to have really transparent accounts so they can see it. Now, what we've got is a very strong quality shareholder following who are saying, Well, Brett, why do you pay these dividends when you could reinvest it? You know, 40% ROE, 40% plus ROE, which is you know, one of the investors came to us. They said, you've got as good ROE as anyone in the world at this sort of size. Um, and I said, um, no worries. Uh, we'll have a look at that. They were also the people talk. You know, they, they acquire programmatic. They're an investor into pr- programmatic acquirers who were talking about the structure and whatnot. And so we're looking with our shareholders at, you know, what is the best way to run the company for the long term to actually be able to deliver, you know, a global platform for, you know, essentially first choice accountants for private business owners that want to go somewhere and the first choice platform for people that own the firms that service those clients. So that's where we're trying to get to. We've got a pretty clear... You could dual less, could you, maybe in the in, in the in the US or something too? Yeah, you could. So, you know, we're considering with the board what the best way to do to go forward is. But I wanted to prove for five years the model, which I think we've done, and, um, and then work out, you know, how to go to the next level in terms of, um, become what we, we aspire to be ultimately, which is a Berkshire-style business focused on our industry. When and if you, if you sell down part of your stake, keep keep control via dualist and structure, you have that Buffett kind of buffer there, and then you don't have, you don't have to pay dividends and you can keep reinvesting. Quickly. So that's the sort of stuff we're kicking around. But they're, and they're my, you know, they're my aspirations to think through. You know, at the end of the day, I, you know, I have a publicly declared obvious hero, and you know, I want to get to a structure that's the same as his. That's all. <laughs> that's the game. And we were too small when we started. I wanted to be publicly listed so we could be transparent with the people that were joining us, that we were a properly structured and properly financed and properly audited group um, so that they could have confidence in what we're doing. And that's worked very well. Um, and ultimately, 
you know, when I grow up, I want it to be like like my heroes and have the structure that they have to do what they do. It's not very complex. Most people will tell you you can't do it. But. Would you keep your salary the same then? Like I think Buffett, don't think, I mean, obviously don't get a salary now, but he had a salary really low for years and obviously had a buffer there, so it's different. But how would you? I think the problem with that, yeah, like like when we listed, um, the investment bankers were like, look, you've got to have a market salary because otherwise if you die, it'll affect the P&L because we'll actually have to pay the new guy properly. So these days I'm less, I'm less concerned about what I get paid because – you know, when I was selling down a large chunk of my founder shares, I owned 89% of the business pre-IPO, which I was prepared to accept a low, relatively low valuation in order to become a public company. I was willing to say I'm prepared to prove the business model publicly. I'm not, you know, part of the discourse with the bankers and the brokers was like, but Brett, you're an unproven public company CEO. Well, at the end of the day, whether you own a large stake in a company like I do or not, the company didn't give me my stake. I've not been given options. You know, my stake came from my wife and kids' sacrifice and blood, sweat and tears. And if ultimately the shareholders want to retain somebody like me, then the board needs to occupy themselves with some thinking about how best to do that. So you do need to pay people like me. Um, A, because if you want to replace me, you're going to have to pay somebody. And B, because it's not naturally just not to pay somebody for the work they do. I was just in the US where the brokers are charging up to 5% of the um, of the value of acquisitions they make. I've made $40 million worth of acquisitions in the last five years, for which I've been paid approximately zero. I've made 40 million, approximately, you know, millions and millions. I do lots of good stuff. And I, and I just don't do the wrong thing by the company. But look, going forward, the company will have to pay me on the same basis they paid me at IPO. And, you know, um, you can imagine the sorts of conversations I just had in the US as to what somebody would pay somebody like me to do something like I'm doing. So you'll take a bigger salary then and have that and then just, and then, yeah, yeah, and have those dividends and just get normal, yeah, normal market salary kind of and then. What about compounding my equity? I don't think I could do, personally, I don't think I could have done more to demonstrate my own values, my own commitment to the business. You know, I own a massive amount of equity. I sold a bunch of equity on the cheap. To be so that I could build a free float to have a public company, so that I could show the business model to the market. And to well, so you had eighty nine percent, but you sold down over the last five years as a, you've sold in the market. No, no pre IPO. So pre IPO, we raised capital and we raised capital at the IPO, so that you know I went from eighty nine fifty one um, point six. And you haven't uh, sold a share since. No, I've sold about a million shares over the last five years just to fund my lifestyle. Um, not because, you know, essentially to make up the gap between what I get paid and what my market, you know, what some sort of decent salary would be so I can eat, you know, so I can eat and survive. And that's why I have... I'm not driving Lamborghinis around. <laughs> that's why I have such weird share trading activity because if I need five cents, I might sell the odd share here and there, I might buy them back too. Um, so when people look at my buying and selling activity, they're always amused. Um, but I just, you know, manage my cash flow. But yeah, look, I'm, I'm excited, but I think we can get the business to a really substantial level. And, you know, if anyone doubts that we've built a model that is completely unique, we have trademarked it. It's called a partner owner driver. And, you know, we think it works. And I'll just quietly continue to go go along and, you know, and um, 
and try and demonstrate that. And what I would say for anyone that listens, you know, if if good people ask me, you know, who are friends of good friends of ours, ask me to do a podcast or do an interview, then if I can find the time, I'll do it in the spirit of trying to share what I've learned. So it's now 8 p.m. here in Sydney. I've got three kids. There's probably other things I could be doing. And frankly, I, you know, I don't do it for my own glorification nor self-promotion nor promotion of the business. You know, so when I see these peanuts online making this commentary, I just sort of laugh. What would you say to them, Brett? Because that's one question, you know, what, what, what do you think people, people like that misunderstand about you personally? And your and your mission when they would make call you promotional. Or... I said to somebody on Twitter today. I said, "Hey, mate, every dollar of revenue that came into this business from day one, I personally sold. I went out and said, do you have a great accountant? If you don't, why don't we talk?' Brett, what do you mean by a great accountant? Well, do you know how you know accountants don't give you forward-looking advice? They never tell you how much it's going to cost. They give you an estimate and then charge you more. You can never get hold of a boss." They don't have a system that they can demonstrably prove can make you better off and you're not sure they're making your life better. Well, let me show you how we do that for you and if that's of any interest, why don't you come and be a client of Kelly Partners? I did it over and over and over again to get client after client after client in the door. I sold $750,000 worth of new services in the first three months of the firm and I relentlessly, if you walk past me, I'd ask you to be a client and I still do that today. So that's what founders do. And so if somebody asks me a question about the company, I'll tell them. I'll genuinely try and, try and, you know, I've tried to save us time as a group by publishing an owner's manual, publishing FAQs. When investors come to us, we don't take meetings. We send them a list of information and videos. And then we say, if you've got any questions, send them to us in writing and we answer them and add them to our FAQs. And then if they've got any more questions, we get them to put it in writing and then we might meet with them. But that's saving us time. So that that so-called promotion is saving me time so that I can just go and continue to run the business, help our people, find clients and find firms. So that's actually a way of me saving time. So I'm not doing investor meetings. I don't do roadshows at, at results time. I do an investor call and then I send out my email with lists of things like this and say, here's a video you might find interesting. Here's a, a you know owner's manual. Here's a deck. It saved me it's almost like you can't win, Brett, though, right? Like, if, if, if you're not, if you're not out there more, you know, like that. Think about it if you're me, right? If you're sceptical and you bought our stock in the middle of a pandemic at 60 cents, you know, you, you would have seen that 60 cents turn into five bucks. So that's not so bad. So be as sceptical as you like. Essentially, I look at our partners and the underlying businesses and how committed and hardworking and great people they are and the difference they're making to their people and their clients. And I'm like, don't get distracted by me, right? We've got 15,000 client groups. We've grown at 30% a year for 16 years in a row. We've got an unbelievably committed group of people that are really committed to making a difference. Don't get distracted by me. Just understand that we're in the accounting business. Governments aren't going to stop collecting taxes. They're going to be more aggressive in the future, not less, and you're going to need really great tax advice, and we're committed to delivering that. And you know what? If you've met an account with as much energy and as passion as me, that's as well read and thoughtful and deep about what we're doing and owns half the business and is prepared to be public about it and fully committed, then go and buy that stock. But, you know, from my point of view, I'm just trying to do publicly what we do privately in an effort to grow the business. Now, there's nothing I wouldn't do, right, that's legal and ethical to 
share what I think is a really great story, but that great story is a story of our people and the difference they're making to our clients. And I wouldn't be doing the right thing by them if I didn't share that story. So that's my job. I could just go skiing and neglect the job. But, hey, let's face it, have a look at the numbers. If you don't like the promotion, line up the cash flow statement over the last five years and have a look at that. Find something in the business, the fundamentals of the business that don't make sense. But at the end of the day, if you're sceptical, I'm going to make sure it costs you a lot of money over the next decade. Is there anything just about the business that you think people misunderstand, you know, about the financials, about the structure, about the operating model that you see investors typically trip up with? Most people are lazy and not very well read. So I meet people and they, I ask them, that's why I don't want to do an investor meeting with me. I say, have you read the Warren Buffett way, king of capital, snowball, outsiders of common stock, common profits? And the answer of most investors is they haven't read any of them, which is stunning when you're an investor. And as a result, I don't have much in common with those people. So it's difficult to have an, an appropriate conversation. So I get my CFO, Ken, to go and ask them that. And if they haven't read those books, I don't want to talk to them because it's a waste of time. So basically, people aren't that well read. They're not really committed to learning. And so as a result, what they do is they work by pattern recognition. They just say, they call me an accountant, which is funny, right? Um, they go, well, Brett, you know, you're an accountant. And I'm like, well, I might be an accountant, but I might also have written five books. I might also have given more than 2,000 professional speaking engagements. I might be many things. But most people, they're looking for a shorthand answer. They want to just put you in a box. They just want to put your business in a box and make out it's the same as something else I've already seen. And it might be. It's possible, right? We all do a bit of pattern recognition. But it does take intellectual curiosity and genuine effort to get to know somebody in their business. And most people are too busy for that. Busy is like the real, you know, the, the really bad four-letter word. And so, you know, what most people misunderstand is that this is not a roller. This is not a promotional roller. This is a long-term 100-year play to take 51, 49 stakes in accounting firms and make them better at looking after their people and clients. And we're just going to do it relentlessly forever, as long as I've got breath in me, um, where we can make a difference. It's as simple as that. It's not that complex. And we're very, very good at it. We've, we've developed a model that's very, very well considered, very deeply thought through, and very, very diligently executed. But, you know, you can judge us on that over time. This is not a new business. We've been running nearly 17 years, and I'm intending to do this as a public company for a long time. So, yeah, I don't, I don't mind. I can do, like, for the next 12 months, I can publish nothing, do no podcast, meet no people. Let's face it, the company was a private company for 12 years before we listed, 11 years, and I, didn't, I did basically none of that. So that's no skin off my nose. If it helps then I'm happy to do it. I don't want it to be an distraction to the business. I'll put it that way. Well, it's going to be a pretty good journey for that long. Yeah, let me make one final comment. Lawrence Cunningham, who I respect deeply, read one of my um, quality shareholders' newsletters. It was sent to him by some guy in Spain, and he read it and liked it and sent me an email. Will Thorndike spoke at our AGM, wrote the book, The Outsiders, which I love and have learned so much from. He saw the same quality shareholders name that somebody else sent to him, and he sent me an email and said, hey, Brett, I'd love to look at your business. Could we chat? And they'd already bought 500,000 shares at that point. 
So, you know, if my promotion, if that's what people want to call it, when I actually call it my communication, leads me to meet people like that, such that Lawrence gets involved, observes a business, sits as a shadow director observing the board, and then joins our board, if that's a bad thing, I'm going to keep doing that bad thing. Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I'm probably going to do more. Probably do more. I can't write letters to people. I can't write letters to people who write these great books who that influence me and just thank them for their book. Some of them ring me up and do Zooms with me. It taught me so much. You can look on our podcast. I did a podcast with Sir Martin Sorrell that founded WPP. He did a YouTube video I watched. He shared his email address at the end, so I emailed him. He looked up our company and said, oh, yeah, I'd love to have a chat. He did a, a Zoom call with me. And then I said to him, oh, any chance you'd come on my podcast? Like if you can't learn from a guy that built a $14 billion business and then got turfed out and built a $7 billion business, then you should give up. And so if, if you know, if, if being the way I am puts me in touch with people that inspire me and give us great ideas for our business, then I'm going to keep doing that, you know. But you can't, you can't win all the conversations and you can't make everyone happy. But we'll try and conduct ourselves in a sort of humble and determined way for a long time. At the end of the day, that might work. 